News of aliens visiting the aerial school spread far and wide, leading to more attention on the nature of UFOs and extraterrestrial encounters. Some skeptics weren't convinced, and those professionals involved paid the professional price. Were the kids misled by them? Was it all part of a big hoax? Or were the students selected as vessels for an intergalactic message? This week's episode is The Aerial School UFO Incident, Part 2. Fills with dread, probably a murderer who wants you dead. It could be a ghost, a demon, or worse. Perhaps you're the victim of a witch's curse. It's hopeless, you're doomed. You'd call a priest if you could. You'd rather just listen to who? Sinisterhood. Well, I've been thinking about this since we covered it, since before we even recorded the episode and thereafter. I feel like I bring it up when talking to other people. Just be like, anyway, you know, 1994. It's a head scratcher that more people don't know about this. And I hope that with the documentary and more podcasts covering it, that it gets spread far and wide. Because go read some reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. And even people that are skeptics say the documentary is very well done and really shows the compelling and compassionate side that often isn't represented in these types of stories. Yeah, because a lot of times it is more played for, I won't say laughs, but almost, you know, incredulity, which comes from, I'm sure anytime, you know, back in the 90s when this was going on, Sally, Jesse, Raphael, or Phil Donahue or whatever, they didn't want to seem like they were buying into it because it was so widely ridiculed. But when you now look back at it with this, you know, the benefit of hindsight and the benefit with what we know now, you do kind of go, wow, we really shit on a lot of people back when this happened and caused a lot of damage. Not only people, but kids. So right during their formative years. So as we'll discuss, many of them are still affected by it. Still affected by it. Well, healing. And yeah, healing in their own way. But, you know, taking that hurt and turning it into art, that's one way to one way Mm -hmm. to deal with it and try to make connections with the other people that were part of it, whether part of the UFO incident at aerial school or anybody that's had these type of encounters to look at that art and go, that's exactly what I saw. Yeah. Find each other on message boards. I'm sure there's a lot of Reddit forums you could go to. Oh, yeah. Find people that have been through this a similar thing as you, but this specific incident, they have, you know, 59 other peers with which they can discuss this. And that is why this story seems so credible to me. Oh, yeah. There's so many people so very involved. Well, uh, before we get going in this, by the time you're all listening to this, you're going to hear it. We're going to be in Boston tonight. If you're listening on July 19th, you still have time. Maybe if there's tickets left, check Sinisterhood.com slash live shows and get to Laugh Boston tonight, July 19th. Tomorrow, July 20th, we're going to be in Brooklyn. And this Saturday, July 22nd, we'll be in Washington, D.C. So if you're in or near any of those areas, drive over and see us and hang out if you can. If it's not sold out, the VIP Q&A afterwards, because that's like one of our favorite parts is to just one on one, you know, talk. You guys can raise your hand, ask a question. And it's like a big conversation with all of us to uh, to talk about what we've been talking about on the air. We can talk about stuff we discussed in the Full Moon Energy show, stuff we've been talking about on the air. 
new things that have come out in the headlines that maybe we haven't talked about yet or frogs toads yeah it's gonna you know, be a slideshow of <laughs> we'll john also hopper. just show you videos of john hopper who was very much out last night <laughs> he was in his little hut so i mean hopping around freely and then checked on him later and he's just in his moss house it's mm-hmm. so perfect he just looks out onto the splendor and beauty of the yard some treats so right. he uh, yeah he gave him some mealworms <laughs> He's, so he's very happy. cute and sweet. We paint, planted some new plants and flowers specifically for his enjoyment. So hopefully he's uh, just as happy out there as we are going to be at these shows seeing all y'all. Yes. And I brought the tiny versions of all of corn skull and the other skull heads that are vegetables. Corn it's- skull and the skull heads coming to you soon <laughs> they're opening. with the Donna Laser and the Meat Warlocks tour that yeah, needs they to go back this. on tour. They've been on a hiatus for a while. They got to go back on tour. Donna Laser has a very specific creative process. She cannot be bothered. <laughs> and when she's ready, she'll go back out. Yeah, she's like it, Steve Perry. She's real specific. It could be decades, but it's going to be worth it. <laughs> it will be. Well, yeah. Well, sinisterhead.com slash live shows. And we'll see you there or some dates in August. Check them out. For sure. Well, for now, I'm Christy. I'm Heather. And let's get into it. Although they had the backing of a BBC journalist, a medical doctor from a world-renowned institution, and their own intense memories and dreams of the encounter, the children from Ariel School were still met with skepticism. From bullying neighbors to doubtful family members, they were mocked or told not to discuss their stories leaving the students feeling sad, confused, and isolated. And that's what Emily Trim, the daughter of the missionaries, the Salvation Army missionaries, said. She just said, I f- you felt like you have no one to talk to. Especially her. She was ripped out of the school right after it happened and moved back to Canada. Some of the other kids, I imagine it was talked about the rest of the school year. What else are you going to talk about? <laughs> I think it's Oof. all I would talk about on the recess, you know, go back to that same spot every day just to see if you could find something or they show up again. Right. But if you get taken away from all your friends that can relate, that's, that is very isolating and lonely. It's so lonely and being all the way in Canada. But even some of the kids that stayed living in the area said, oh, if I talked about it, my peers would beat me up. Like the kids that weren't on the playground or neighbor kids that didn't go to the school that it's like, oh, you saw little green men. You saw. And I imagine kids don't just get that mockery from anywhere. They get it from their parents who have said, you hear the neighbor kid said he saw an alien on the playground. Weirdo. Well, then that kid goes and parrots it. And beats a person up. And it's like, I not only did I have to get this message from the aliens, nobody will listen to me. Now I get my milk money stolen and the crap kicked out of me. What the fuck? And all I'm trying to do is tell you to stop polluting the world and <laughs> put your phone down. Whatever yeah, your your big, chunky cell phone that would have been around back then. Like Zach Morris style with the big Maybe, antenna. Yeah, the big antenna. Maybe even the ones that were literally connected in the car like mounted on the floorboard of the car my dad had one of those (laughs) i've always seen those you would pick it up and there's a cord going to the like thing that comes out of the it was like mounted under the you know stereo on the console but it was about a foot tall so it's like you just reach down get it It has a full-on cord you're on the phone in the car 
Damn. I remember seeing that on uh, Pretty Woman with Richard Gere. He has like a car phone. And I thought it was crazy cool. Yes. And now you're telling me your dad had one of those. That's killer. That's fast. It was a. Yeah. If you're a lawyer in the 90s, you got to be available. Yeah. But looking back, I'm like, man, how far technology has come. And especially even from 94, like the phones that were then much different than the phones we have now vastly different and even then the aliens were like put the shit down it's not gonna get any better <laughs> right they saw they knew dr max shared his conclusions about the 1994 sighting in zimbabwe on television interviews and continued his research into the ufo abduction phenomenon he published the book abduction human encounters with aliens in 1994 and lit a firestorm in the academic and medical communities Mac was relentlessly mocked in the media with headlines such as E.T. phone Harvard mocking his Ivy League position. It's the worst part is that he really was, I think, trying to listen to these people with an empathetic ear, not just the the Rua school incident, you know, not this incident we're talking about in this, but he would talk about people who were visited in their house or kind of like the Travis Walton episode. And he was applying the same type of interview techniques that he would apply to anybody who had had a traumatic or a significant encounter. But because of the nature of their incidents and because he took the time to listen with an empathetic ear, they made fun of them et phone harvard it's a good burn but it's mean <laughs> don't bring et into this first don't besmirch <laughs> the good name of et and again he's doing this with children and to have that rapport of respect and not talking down to them in a condescending way but you know he would he asked questions like you would an adult and respected them and treated them with maturity and sincerity and for to be mocked for that i'm like to be mocked for doing your job well, for being a nice right. and compassionate person that isn't going to mock and criticize these kids. God, sounds like a monster. Right. And it's like people come to him and he created this like institute on a little bit off campus at Harvard because eventually kind of like lost his office and was like kept getting like downgraded and downgraded professionally. But he he said, you know, there I am here to just listen to people's encounters and help them make sense of it. Not to say, oh, yes, aliens are real, but it's right. of course gets twisted and mocked. It's a lot yeah. funnier to make fun of it. He wasn't saying aliens are real. Aliens aren't real. He simply stated the facts of his clinical diagnosis, which was these children are not lying and what they say happened to them really happened to them. And there was no, yeah, that's not a delusionary disorder. It's not something happened. The nature of that thing, we can't know. Was it an alien? Was it tiny Russians in scuba suits that had crashed into the fields in their new mm -hmm. satellite? Who knows? But something did happen and... For that, he was mocked, that he would dare believe the children. All right. The idea of a credentialed psychiatrist seriously examining claims of UFO abductions made for juicy headlines, but Mac's research was sound. Rather than indulge in fantasy, he applied his medical interview methods to people who were otherwise considered fringe or unreliable. The book actually focused on the spiritual effects of the encounters, rather than attempting to prove they were real. Mac wrote, The abduction phenomenon has important philosophical, spiritual, and social implications for everyone. The administrators of Harvard Medical School were not believers, it seemed. Though Mac was a tenured professor and had been for some time, 
the publication of his book and his subsequent connection to the aerial UFO incident brought heat on the institution. The dean appointed a committee whose aim was to review Mack's methods of research and ensure they met scientific rigor. If they didn't, Mack faced censure or loss of tenure. The committee looked into Mack for over a year before finally releasing a statement that Mack was not subject to any punishment. Instead, the committee reaffirmed Dr. Mack's academic freedom to study what he wishes and to state his opinion without impediment. Harvard Law Professor Alan Dershowitz posed a question in interview footage for Aerial Phenomenon, asking, Why do some people believe in angels but not aliens? Dershowitz, a scholar on civil rights, believed that Mack was entitled to his research, telling interviewers, The most fundamental right that any academic has is the right to be wrong. Prove that he's wrong. That's the job of other academics. I really liked this soundbite interview with him because he made some very solid points that, again, weren't leaning one way or the other. It was just facts like, why do some people believe in angels but not aliens? Right. And I think that's definitely heavily influenced by Alan Dershowitz's position as a constitutional scholar, specifically a civil rights scholar and saying it's your right to practice whatever fringe religion, whatever fringe belief you have, you know, assuming, of course, it's not harmful to others. But because we have the Constitution, at least in the United States, it says the government shall establish no religion in his mind. He's like, you can't say one's right and one's not right because we, that's the whole point of America was yeah. born on that. It was not to say we have said that this is the exact belief system that we'll all follow. That's actually just why we left England, because they were doing that. And we were like, nah, not on. Nah. So you the can fact disagree, that but that, you can't affirmatively say this isn't true. That's just your belief, man. And putting it in angels, but not aliens. We've heard angels and airways, but I would like to hear the band angels, but not aliens. But that's a really great question of like, why is it so pal- like it's so palatable to believe in angels, but not not aliens? Well, I would say because uh, our country is founded on Christianity and that religion has been, uh, you know, do I want to say shoved down people's throats or it's just widely yeah. accepted, you know, for um centuries. So I've always felt if from the beginning, we've all were taught aliens were real and that was the thing, like it would be reverse. It's just because we're all accustomed to this hearing about this religion and the beliefs and everything. And we've grown up with it. So it's normalized. But when you really break it down, is it any different than any of the other religions or are any of those religions any different than believing in things like aliens? Right. It's a good point. It's perspective and the prevalence of what beliefs are around you when you're born. Cause certainly if you were born in a place that worshiped the people from the sky in a different way, that would be your, and you're right. I think insofar as we were built on the notion of religious freedom in the, especially in the past 100, 200 years, there's been this movement towards this, like the prevalence of Christianity and that being the default belief system, when in fact it shouldn't be because there's 7 billion people on the world, on the earth. And everybody believes, even if you are a Christian, you believe a different version of it or whatever. But I think that's, you nailed it. It's just the perspective and the prevalence of where you're at. So for us, you know, it might seem like, oh, that's weird. It's, angels are way more believable than aliens, but just because this is where you were born. To me, aliens are more believable than angels. Or but what it's this whole me. time. Everybody's been calling them angels, but it's really been aliens. Maybe they're the all time. the same things. 
Sinisterhood will be right back. In reflecting on the ordeal years later, Matt confirmed that associating himself with UFOs, alien encounters, and the stories of these school children was not a boon for his career, saying, It was an opportunity to commit professional suicide. Similarly, Tim Leach, the reporter who got MUFON and Mac involved in the aerial school incident in the first place, marked his reporting on this case as the end of his career at the BBC. Which is so sad for Tim Leach was such a, you know, he was out in the field reporting on this really violent stuff and spent all these years of his life following his passion for the benefit of the BBC. And as he continues to follow curiosity and passion, it's like, but that's a little weird, isn't it? Stop giving him assignments. Let's get him out of yeah. here. And it's like. It's also in the aerial phenomenon. You see footage that he shot from when he was on the front lines reporting. And it's uh, gut-wrenching. It's yeah. violent. It's upsetting. And the BBC's okay with putting that all over their network but they're not okay with something about aliens. And then it might be true. Yeah. And that's a good point too, is like, what can we stomach that we're more willing mm -hmm. to stomach? Oh, the violence. Yeah, we know that's for sure. But something that would pique our ontological curiosity of like, wait, could this, maybe it's not what I believed. It's like, well, I like to believe what I like to believe. And I like to see what I know is real. And I don't want to think about anything else. But Tim Leach was out there asking the questions. With the public so hell-bent on discrediting the journalist and doctor who investigated the incident, alternative theories emerged to explain what happened on the playground that day in September of 1994. One of the most popular theories is that the entire incident was one of mass hysteria, more commonly known today as mass psychogenic illness, defined by Science Direct as a contagious disassociative phenomena that take place in large areas of people or institutions under conditions of anxiety. According to Healthline, physical symptoms can include chest pain, dizziness, headaches, and fainting, none of which the students at aerial school experienced. Extreme anxiety and stress are also believed to be catalysts for mass hysteria. Healthline does give examples of a strict school environment and tense school relationships as two possible triggers, However, none of the students at the time discussed anything relating to their unhappiness at the school with Dr. Mack or reporters. Rather, even as adults, many of the witnesses to the event speak very fondly of their time at aerial school and of their teachers and classmates. It doesn't fit all the, the makings of mass hysteria. And that's an interesting thing because you'll see, you know, so we post our videos and our images on social media and stuff. And I think if people didn't listen to the episode or whatever, or in passing, if you look it up on Reddit, someone will just kind of without having dug into it, go, wow, it's just mass hysteria. You know, everybody's just like at the same time. And it's like, well, the dancing plague is mass hysteria. The, you know, there are documented incidents of it that this doesn't fit at all, but it's a quick kind of label that you could throw out and just go, well, I don't, you could probably don't want to believe it or you don't want to think about it to just go, it was just mass hysteria. They're all just... Just dismiss it. Salma Siddick participated in an Ask Me Anything on Reddit alongside film director Randall Nickerson. When asked about the mass hysteria theory, Salma said, Thanks for bringing this theory up. Sure, I'm not perfect. Memory is fallible, but I do remember it quite vividly as best as possible. And regarding your last question, my confidence stems from my belief in my experience that I had with other classmates who were a part of the experience. The experience that I had and what I saw was unlike anything I've ever seen since. 
Film director Randall Nickerson was similarly skeptical, writing online, Even with mass hysteria, the story would change over time, at least with some of the witnesses. There wouldn't be so much detail in their own memories, and each child tells it from their own viewpoint slightly differently. And their stories are consistent from 20 years ago to now. Yeah, exactly. And the the drawings, what I think is really... Uh, poignant about it is how quickly that the trim children were taken from the area to Canada and the fact that Emily's drawings remain consistent with the drawings and things that her classmates drew throughout the years having been totally separated the whole time Mm -hmm. so anything with like oh well it's this hysteria well she was gone you know her and her brothers would have been taken away from that the effect or the you know whatever the draw of this mass hysteria and you know it would have been broken by the time they got to Canada and it's still with them and they're adults in fact, she's arguably one of the more traumatized ones. And right. she was not around to participate in a mass hysteria event. Likewise, others believe that the students are victims of implanted or false memories, perhaps caused by the exercise of regression therapy, a type of psychotherapy, also called talk therapy, that guides people to remember past events and traumas buried in their subconscious, according to Very Well. During regression therapy, a therapist will create a relaxing environment, instructing the patient to close their eyes and visualize or describe past events while discussing how revealing those events makes them feel. Proponents of this practice believe this can help bring repressed memories to the conscious surface. Similarly, opponents of regression therapy say it can cause more harm than good, often bringing traumatic memories to the surface that the patient is not ready to confront or even having false memories implanted due to leading questions and suggestions by the therapist. This wouldn't quite explain what happened to the children. None of them were made to close their eyes, tap into their subconscious, or prompted with leads. Dr. Mack did not contact each and every child, only a sample size who were still available when he arrived a few months after the incident. Likewise, the massive amount of archival footage from the time also lends credence to there having been an actual incident on that day. Students, teachers, and neighbors were filmed in the immediate aftermath of what they had seen. Months later, when Dr. Mack interviewed them, their stories and drawings remained the same. And I think that's another thing that's the most, uh, this is something else that people will throw out and be like, oh, that doctor, he was like, he was kind of disgraced by Harvard. And it's like, way to remember only the headlines and not that Harvard said, nah, he was legit. And saying, oh, well, he implanted their memories or he asked these questions. You can watch the footage yourself at no point. It's like we said in part one, does he say, tell me about the little men in the suits with the white faces? He's like, so what happened? What'd you see? And then they just, Mm -hmm. yeah, spill it. How'd you feel? that's interesting. Even nearly three decades later, the students who were there remained steadfast as to what they saw. Salmacidic wrote online. No, I've never doubted my experience, and I remember it to the best of my ability. I'm not sure what their mission or missions are. I think this is something I'm continuing to discover as I grow, and I may never discover. So I don't think I have a full answer. Film director Randall Nickerson agreed with Siddick, writing online, False memory from one person, sure, but from 62 or more? Doesn't seem likely. Or even no, and it's pause, especially for kids. It just isn't likely. It's not even possible. And some of the kids that were interviewed for the documentary, uh, or later interviewed online, weren't even the ones that Dr. Mac talked to. So even if you want to mm-hmm. say, "Oh, the ones that he talked to, he really planted their memories in," 
but really they the ones that he didn't even talk to like emily trim never even talked to him so it's like she couldn't have had a memory planted in her if she never even spoke to him Mm -hmm. and it's she's in another on another continent another theory is that the entire incident was simply made up Skeptics believe the school and related parties concocted the scheme for fame, money, or attention. Randall Nickerson finds this theory hard to believe. He wrote online that. In the archival footage alone, the students told the same story over many years and many sources. It's inconceivable to any of the journalists who covered the scene that they could have fabricated it. From the MUFON woman to the the head of their school at the time... They were believed by many, many adults, Dr. Mack, Tim Leach. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, the adults that really should have believed them that matter the most to them, like their parents, a lot of them didn't. I completely agree that like the archival footage is what makes this so believable because without that, it is just all of us trying to connect the dots and like imagine these kids saying that. But when you watch these kids in earnest, like it's not one iota of them seems to be lying and then also the adults hearing them speak about it even the teachers in in the group you know i mean some are like yeah i think they made it up but others are like no the fear was so real they just couldn't have fabricated it and that's the camp i lean on to yeah you're right the footage especially showing the same children who are interviewed by tim leach who again is a bbc journalist he's not trying to plant a memory or get them to say anything and in fact He was kind of like, all right, I'm going to prove all these people or, you know, they don't know what they're talking about. But he used instead of being biased, he just used his same journalistic standards. But watching that footage where he the BBC initially interviews them in the days following, comparing it to weeks later with Cynthia Hind from MUFON, comparing it to then months later with John Mack, when you see it's not scripted, but it's consistent. I think that's where you're like the whole, oh, well, probably the psychologist just tricked him. It just falls apart. I'd be interested to hear from if they are still living, uh, and I'm sure many are, the parents of the kids that experienced this at the time. End of time and reflection and being more knowledgeable and educated on it has changed their opinion and, you know, that they do believe their kids actually saw this that day. Yeah, and the only really inkling is from Emily when she's talking to the woman, Judy, I believe is her name, who was the deputy headmistress at the time. And then when they were filming the documentary, all those years later, she was the headmistress of the whole school. And she said, you know, to Emily, your mom and dad wouldn't have believed you. And Emily said, they believed that something had occurred, but it was very difficult for them to integrate. And then Judy jumps in and says, yeah, it's difficult to put your religion and see the Christian side with what's happening. So it's a, it was at least for me, because I get attached to the few of the subjects that we cover, I was at least heartened to hear that maybe her parents have at least said, we believe you that you saw something. What that was, you know, we can disagree on. But it seems like years later, her persistence, they were finally like, okay, we do believe. Sinisterhood will be right back. Tim Leach of the BBC, the self-described skeptical hard-ass journalist who spent extensive time researching and tracking down leads in his investigation, told filmmakers years later, those children were absolutely credible. You can look at their faces, even through the television, you can look at their faces and know if they're bullshitting or not, and they weren't. Leach was convinced that the children were neither delusional nor lying, saying, 
They accepted it in their full stripe. They knew what they'd seen. They're not stupid. Children are so much more open than adults. I do find a group of 62 children speaking about this more believable than a group of 62 adults. Right? It's almost like you don't have the the scheming, the self-serving. Like, why the would skill the skill to orchestrate skill. something like that? Yeah. No. No, 62 adults can get together and, you know, still, somebody's going to crack multiple people. You can't keep that ruse up for years. But kids, especially not. No, and especially and if you're an adult and one of them saying something that's either not going with the story, you can make eye contact and kind of be like, hey, hey, you know, mm-hmm. have that higher level of communication, whereas kids would just be like, you're messing up the story. We told you to say they had on scuba suit. You know, mm-hmm. they're not going to have the subtleties that adults would be able to, uh, you know, pull off a giant masterminding hoax. I think kids, too, speak of things in more simplistic and honest terms and descriptions a lot. You know, because they don't have the language or whatever to to embellish. So it's just kind of like, yeah, this is they had these huge eyes like footballs. They were wearing scuba suits and they were running around and kept disappearing and reappearing. I don't know. Yeah, shit. Okay, that's what it was. Period. Nicole Carter of SABC News also investigated at the time. She was not convinced the incident was a hoax mostly given the inability of children to keep a secret. She reasoned in a later interview that if there was a made-up story, at least one of the kids would have cracked under the pressure of so many interviews and confessed to the conspiracy. Instead, they remained steadfast into adulthood. What they saw was very real and suffered both interpersonal and professional consequences when describing what happened. And that's what you think, too. When one of the students is saying, I'm not even telling my husband about this. Other people are saying, I don't bring it up. I don't even tell therapists about it sometimes. If it was something that was so easily, it's just a lie. I could just, then why wouldn't you just say, hey, we all made that up, by the way. I'm finally going to say something because I want to be free of it. If it was a lie, why would you suffer for 20 years under that same thing? No one seems to be benefiting from this lie or if it was a lie keeping it up. So I I don't really see the point of it if it was a lie. Like you may have lied back then because you're kids and you're like, oh, this will be funny to pull over on our teachers. But 20 years later, you would give, yeah, that was a lie. We made it up, you know, but it's, that's not the case. You get nothing out of it. You're and in yeah. fact, you're losing stuff by keeping the lie up. So it's like, what else but the truth would keep you so attached to this incident? Emma Christensen was grade six at the time of the incident. She told filmmakers even her husband has no idea about the UFO encounter. Fellow classmate and friend Emily Trim has also struggled as an adult due to her experience that September day in 1994 and from the lack of support she received in the subsequent years. In Aerial Phenomenon, she confides in filmmakers that the emotional and mental toll this has taken on her was one of the reasons she ended a six-year engagement. Emily Trim returned to Zimbabwe as an adult in 2017. The experience was chronicled in the documentary. As she stood near the playground at 28 years old, Emily cried and told filmmakers. They forget there's a human being behind all this, and nobody asked for it to happen. During her visit, Emily was taken by the current deputy headmaster of the school to sacred places in the region in order to discuss the incident in the context of Zimbabwe's cultural landscape. 
After a five-hour drive into Great Zimbabwe, Emily was introduced to Chief Namanwa of the Mesvingo province. She described the 1994 incident with the beings, how they looked, and what happened. The chief had some words of comfort for the distraught Canadian, saying, We've got those ones. We experience them quite a lot. He confirmed that yes, the beings sometimes looked exactly how Emily had described, with large black almond-shaped eyes, though the chief also warned, They come in different versions. What are the other versions? Right? That's how they, the scene cuts before that. But I really appreciate the cultural competency that the filmmaker showed mm-hmm. in saying it is such a Western, white, colonial Christian lens to go, <laughs> this is all so silly, and not go, why don't we ask the people that fucking live here who have lived here in their, gen- in their families for generations who have these traditional stories either written or oral told and saying, no, you're not crazy. Yes, this has happened before. Or something similar and again saying it's our version of angels we just don't call them aliens we call them something else Mm -hmm. emily also visited with duke munzosa the son and apprentice of village chief goromanzi who also confirmed with emily that what happened to the school children is not so outlandish he told her what you are seeing and what you are experiencing i can conclude that they are spiritual messages that you have to deliver Duke encouraged Emily not to keep the story to herself, saying, You have to share it. By sharing, then you can be able to change people's hearts and minds. So you have to speak up. If they don't hear you're speaking, maybe you have to shout. Duke explained that the children were ideal vessels for the spiritual messages, as they had not yet been exposed to the world, thereby making them better spiritual communicators. That's true. The veil is thinner, as some people say, with kids between spirituality and the other world or something like that. Of They're more willing to listen. And I think the biggest thing to take away from this is she felt heard and seen and believed. So regardless of what you believe looking out is if this happened, did it happen? Who's did any of these people see anything to find someone that says, I believe you. And you need to talk about it and don't let your voice be silenced is very powerful and and healing. Oh, yeah, extremely impactful for her to hear from somebody not just saying, well, empathetically, I kind of get what you're going through, but going, I can tell you that you're not the only one who's done seen this or gone through this. And this is the takeaway in the next step. It probably feels really relieving. Mm hmm. Rumba Kachui, the traditional custodian of Cultural Heritage Valley, is also featured in the documentary. He and Emily traveled to the burial site of the chiefs and stood beside the grave of the royal chief. Rumba was aware of the 1994 event when it happened. He even showed Emily where the UFO incident occurred and how it was in close proximity to this sacred ground. Rumba told Emily that the aliens landed near the area of Ariel School and these graves, being drawn in by the signal of the sacred shrines. So what is the sacred shrine of the uh, school? Well, it's this area up on that hill whenever he takes her over there. It's that big area where they, mm-hmm. they walk kind of down in that cavern. So I guess it's just in spitting distance. He's like, oh, they were clearly drawn to this area and landed over by y'all because this is a great spiritual pillar. And I guess sending messages of energy out into the universe, drawing vortex people Vortex of sorts. Mm-hmm. The children were asked at the time what they believed the purpose of the aliens' visit was. 
Some children remembered staring into the being's eyes and receiving messages and visions of a dystopian future. When asked in 2017 what the alien's message was, Salma Siddiq wrote, I'm not sure what the purpose of the visitation was. The 11-year-old me was asked the same questions by the media, but I had no idea then and no idea now. Another student, Natasha, told filmmakers, The universe is so big, so I can't completely say it's fact there's no life outside of Earth's solar system. We can't know everything. They're smart kids. And that's the thing, too, is like kids don't lie as easily as adults. They're not, they're more inclined to just be honest. I mean, if you want to know the truth about yourself, go ask an 11 year old how you look. (laughs) Does this outfit, and you'll, you'll quickly find out. So I feel like they're just more likely to tell the truth anyways. Well, and especially even as adults, you know, if she wanted to say, if Selma Siddiq wanted to say as an adult, oh, well, the aliens really said this and kind of turn it into something self-serving or whatever. But to say, I didn't know then, I don't know now. To me, it was just an experience that opened my mind or same with Natasha of like, I just opened my mind to the possibilities of the universe and saying, I, I doubt that it were alone. To me, that lends more credence again, because they're not trying to capitalize on it, uh, make a statement, start a movement based on it. It's really more of, this is my truth. I'm saying it because mm-hmm. it's my truth. I don't want anything from you. I, it's just my truth. Almost a journalist worst nightmare is that they're not trying <laughs> to sensationalize it. It's just like, this might be boring to you, but like, I don't know. I don't know yeah. why they came. It wasn't, they didn't like reveal this. I got a message, but you know, I was a kid. What I do with it, how it must have impacted their lives though, knowing right. you experienced this and then looking up at the sky at night in both magical ways, curious, also terrifying. You know, many of them had nightmares that they were being abducted. Maybe some of them aren't even sure if they were dreams. Maybe they they were abducted. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's, again, this wasn't like um, some we've covered where they're like, I was in a cornfield and I got beamed up and then I got dropped back down. And, you know, and it's like, yeah. now I'm ready to have a, a movie and a book and go on all the talk shows. This yeah. just wasn't the same. No, it's more just like, uh, yeah, it was terrifying, and I'm still dealing with it. What else do you want to know about (laughs) it? Yeah, thanks for (laughs) asking. Can we move on to something else now? (laughs) But how profound for a child to say the universe is big, and I can't say that there's not life outside of Earth's solar system. Right, and I'm sure it does change your view. Having this experience as a kid, growing up with it probably makes you more empathetic, more open-minded, more likely to be a better listener and be and consider other people's views and mm-hmm. feelings because you're like, well, who am I to judge? I'm the one that saw, saw an alien when I was eight. So, And you know what it feels like to not be believed yeah, and how hurtful exactly. that is. So, yeah, I think it would – I think it for a lot of people probably uh, shaped their worldview in a way that would not have been had it not been for – such an impactful incident. Definitely. Sinisterhood will be right back. In 2017, filmmaker Randall Nickerson began working on a documentary about the event called Aerial Phenomenon. He was moved by his experience and wrote online, I was impacted by the number of people who had these stories that have kept totally silent. I was drawn to this to give a voice to a subject and a people that's often stigmatized. The documentary, released in 2022, was well-received by both believers and skeptics alike, with one reviewer writing, 
For the UFO believers, Aerial Phenomenon is precisely the film you're looking for as proof of alien existence. But for the unbeliever, Nickerson's film is a mandatory watch to either chip away at your beliefs or make them stronger. I love a measured review. Right? That wasn't like, like, horseshit. Yeah. Or obviously aliens are real. And if you don't believe in them, you're an idiot. It's just, you know, there's two camps here and both should watch it because no matter what you believe, you're going to get something out of this. Oh, absolutely. And even at the end of the day, if you say, I don't think they saw aliens, you can still be moved by the story of yes. kids and the the handful of adults that believed them and watching them as adults go like, that really meant something to me that you you made me feel seen and heard when I was mm-hmm. so little. What's interesting, too, is Nickerson's in this specifically was drawn to this type of story because he himself claims to have been abducted by an alien when he was a child. Yes, he and his sister were on Oprah, and that's kind of like one of the famous uh, clips that was going viral, at the, not viral at the time, but like everyone was talking about it. And for a while in the 90s, like I said, their names earlier, Sally Jesse and Phil Donahue and Oprah would have people on and it became this fodder for talk shows. Mm-hmm. But at the root of it was people that experienced these stories, and I'm sure he having gone through that of being gawked at, mocked, made, uh, you know, part of this, all these wackos are saying they got abducted and knowing what that felt like when you and your sibling genuinely had an experience together, I'm sure it did drive him to want to give this story legs and give it the, and to his credit, I would, you know, it's easy to look on the, on paper and go, oh, the director said he was abducted by aliens. Okay, sure. That's probably why he made this. But I will say the amount of things he included in there that would go to discussing stuff that would debunk it, that would prove that, you know, the, all the archival footage, he comes with receipts and it doesn't come across as a, here's why aliens are real. It is, here's why these people are credible And that's all I'm going to leave you with is they have a credible experience. What you, the viewer, want to plug in as far as what's on the other side of that spaceship door, that's you. That's on you. Yeah, he never really says, this is what I believe. He he just Mm -mm. interviews the people that were involved and lays out the facts that are undisputable and uh, shows a bunch of archival footage. So it's left to the viewer to kind of piece together how you feel. I never felt like it was you know, uh, biased or slanted one way or the other. No, uh, and he had a remarkably different experience than the students, although I'm sure having heard the students' versions, it you know, whether it's, what alien abduction experience would you choose? One where there's a ton of witnesses and nobody believes you, or one where there's no witnesses and nobody believes you? You know, either way, but his was, he was in his house when allegedly these four alien beings came in. He said, quote, I had gone to bed that night when four of these beings came into my house and I was still awake lying in my own bed. I don't know where they came from or how, but they came in very fast into the room heading toward me and then they were all down the side of my bed. I turned to face them and I literally thought I was going to die. But his the beings that came in measured about three foot 11 inches tall and appeared to be very cold. And he said he just felt, quote, it was very, very disturbing to be in a room with something that isn't supposed to exist. That's an interesting way to put that. And then yes. his sister also experienced a similar thing. 
I believe so. It's not in this interview, though. So if I'm wrong about that, I apologize. But he said he refuses to go into further details because, quote, it's too personal. He says, mm. quote, I was taken on the craft to some very contained room, and I can't talk about what was done there because it's too personal. So well, that sounds uh, traumatic. Oh, yeah, for sure. And it it would, I'm sure, make you a much, much more empathetic listener oh, yeah. than the yeah. average director. I think he was the perfect director. The students grew up to lead relatively ordinary lives, according to Nickerson. Some are in the military, practice law, or teach school. Nickerson called them pretty grounded, everyday people. Others, like Emily, are still working through their trauma with therapists and therapeutic hobbies like art. Aerial Phenomenon also revealed that her parents have become more receptive to discussing what happened to her, a development that gives Emily hope for healing from her pain. The students who were there that day remain adamant that it was not an incident of confusion or mass hysteria. Their confidence, coupled with the increasing stream of UFO and extraterrestrial news released daily and corroborated by the U.S. government, makes the Aerial School UFO incident more believable than ever nearly 30 years later. Dr. John Mack did not emerge from his alien abduction research professionally unscathed. According to the Lancet Medical Journal, Harvard instituted a review of Mack's position in 1994, though he fought back and retained tenure. However, professionally, his reputation suffered, according to the Lancet. Arnold Relman, emeritus professor at Harvard Medical School, told the LA Times in 2001, He's not taken seriously by his colleagues anymore. Mack went on to publish several books on hypnotic regression and alien abduction memories. That's a bummer. Yeah. That's a bummer that he was just trying to do his job and help some kids and people also, not just the kids. And that you're snubbed by your snobby, you know, colleagues that just are too good to believe that maybe not even believe in that, but just recognize like, maybe I don't know everything. Exactly. And just to come at it like, oh, John, you silly man. When he's the one that sat in and did all of these interviews. And I think it's like Dershowitz said, like, you're you're allowed to prove him wrong. If you think as a uh, fellow academic that he's implanting memories or, you know, causing these like whatever this false light or hysteria or whatever, then, OK, then you go in and interview mm -hmm. the same people and then you try to suss out whether that's what's happened here. But to, I think dismiss any of his work kind of offhanded like that, especially given Harvard let him retain his tenure. And they said, you know, he's got his he has the ability to study what he wants. Now they said that. Yeah. And then reputationally, it was very like, OK, John, phone home. <laughs> you can believe what you want, but we're all going to mock you. Right. And they kind of made fun of him for his views. But I think now, given all this time later, where we're at with uncovering and not, not like we're secretly uncovering it, but with the US, U.S. government holding these hearings where they're talking about this whistleblower complaint and the actual proof of this of these crafts and this technology and that it's not the first time that we're finding out about it with, you know, the more recent videos. I wonder if John Mack's professional reputation will take a turn in a positive way where we talked about on an episode a while back, the um, Dr. Semmelweis, the very first person who was ever like, maybe before touching a ba baby's birth canal, yeah. after touching a corpse, we should wash our hands. And everyone's like, okay, idiot. And he was like ostracized at the time. I wonder if Dr. Mack will see in the next 
next few years as we do find more and more prevalence and uh, of alien uh yeah, proof that it's real. It'll be like, oh, damn, he was right. Yeah. <laughs> so were those kids. And unfortunately, he's no longer around if that is proved to be true to uh, relish in it and, you know, be like, I knew that all those kids were right. Such a tragic, uh, tragic death. But I'll give James Fox credit. He's the director of the movie The Phenomenon, which you and I watched Uh, And Tommy turned it on and it was where we very first saw like a clip about this. And so James Fox, who directed that is ufologist and looks into this and studies it. And I watched an interview with him when he was talking about how Dr. John Mack was lecturing in London and looked the wrong way. He stepped out onto the street and looked the wrong way instead of, you know, you're in the you're used to in the United States looking one way. He looked the other and he was hit by a car, which is such a kind of quick, senseless, tragic way to Mm -hmm. die. But he said, you know, and then he was hit by a car and the hosts of the podcast were like, oh, do you think it was a conspiracy? And to the credit of James Fox, he's like, no, he's he was an American in England. Mm -hmm. It's, you know, it just is a sad thing that happened. But he's like, there's no larger conspiracy about it. But I appreciate that you're given the opportunity to sensationalize something. And it's like, no, no, I'm here to tell you about what really happened to me or what really happened to these people and not try to make it into a big thing. Yeah. And that's. That's always my issue with a lot of conspiracy theories is you're taking something that and and making it into a mock, mockery by, you know, implying that his death was a conspiracy and cover up. No, he was tragically hit and killed by a car, just mm-hmm. an accident. And to say those types of things and then it gets back to the family, it's just like not everything has to be a big dramatic thing. Sometimes things just happen and they suck, but they happen. Yeah, it's the banality of tragedy, right? Just mm-hmm. like it just ha- how could we have stopped it? And it's just like it just you couldn't. You I just, mean, it, it just, just happens. Sinisterhood will be right back. Even if the aliens were not real, their message has lasted well beyond the initial incident. Salma Siddiq, who was just 11 years old at the time, wrote online. Even as an 11 year old, I was pretty confident But this experience, the fact I believe in what I saw, combined with my understanding of why I was one of so many students who had the experience, makes me confident in not just what I saw, but in myself. Though I internalized the experience for many years after 1994, 1995, not a day went by when I did not think about what happened, why it happened, why me, and what does it mean? So what do we think? Well, I think that is a... This is a situation where even if you want to say, oh, those aliens didn't land and, oh, I don't believe those kids, the message of maybe don't set the building on fire that we're all living in. And by that, I mean the planet. It's not a bad message to receive. And (laughs) even if you want to discount everything else, maybe uh, take a gander at that because technology might take over, you know, the the planet certainly is. Hottest fucking day in 125,000 years. They're not wrong. So taking that message. But it's also just the the thing we've harped on, I think, this whole time is a message of empathy and empathetic listening when someone comes to you with something that's extremely important to them, not letting your own internal biases shut you off to the possibility of making a connection with somebody who clearly trusts you enough to try to make that connection with you in the first place, whether it's a student, your kid, your neighbor, your spouse, once they've grown up and been like, hey, honey, I never told you this before, but 
I saw an alien when I was a kid, you know, something like that to be able to receive somebody's connection that they're trying to make with you with an open heart and an open mind and a listening ear. I think that's uh important in the case if somebody wants to report a crime that has happened to you or Mm -hmm. report uh, something interpersonally devastating that's happened or if they're eight years old and are like mummy I think I saw an alien on the playground yeah just listen just take a minute and listen see what's going on there and to not believe them or to shut them down when they try and talk to you about that is to show your kid that you believe them conditionally that there's some conditions that you're just like nah and then if this, then what? If you, you know, like what else are they not going to tell you because for fear of not being believed? And that's when, you know, abuse is hidden and uh, mental health problems they're experiencing or bullying gets hidden. So you got to set up real early on that you're a safe space for them and that even if they come to you with the most ridiculous thing you've ever heard, you're not going to make them feel like an idiot for having told you. Yeah, that's a gosh, you as you often do, you say something so succinctly and pointedly of like teaching your kids that you trust them conditionally or that you believe them conditionally. That is just such a good way to put that because it as a kid, you think like, oh, my parents love me no matter what and love me unconditionally. And a lot of parents say that. And I'm sure most parents do. But the real rub is that a lot of them also don't. And the same goes for for listening and for trusting. Mm -hmm. And damn, if you have that power over somebody else, always choose the kind route, always choose the empathetic route, because it's never that's never the wrong answer, right? right? Is to just listen and just be there and be a safe spot for them to know, okay, I, the kid down the street may kick me in the ribs for saying I saw an right. alien, but when I get home, at least I know I'm not going to get it from at home too, because yes. you're right. It's how you turn inward, man. I've always thought that, and perhaps because of everything with, with Simon, I've always thought like, no matter what they experience out there i want them to know that like at home they're loved unconditionally they're believed unconditionally it's a safe space where they always feel like they can be themselves because they get kids get enough uh shit thrown at them in the world like their their home should be a safe haven as should school which it is not that's uh If you live in America, you know full on well it's not. So no. at least let the 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 home, you know, and for so many kids, like this week's or last week's Freaky Friday, we heard, you know, that's not how all kids are brought up. That's not how they grow up. And it's a tragedy. So anytime, you know, you can extend to any kid, if, you know, they don't have to be your own, that like, I believe you, you know, I, I might not agree but I believe you, you know, I mean, like my therapist says like acceptance does not equal approval. So you can accept something happened to them. It doesn't mean you have to approve that aliens exist and it goes against all your religious beliefs, but to acknowledge like something happened to you and it was traumatic and you believe it. And therefore perceptions reality and your reality is real warped right now because you're going through something. So I'm here to help you go through that. Yeah, that's exactly the right way, I think. And hopefully it sounds like Emily's parents eventually got there somewhat with saying, you know, I accept something that happened, Mm -hmm. what it was, you know, I won't go there religiously. It's not possible for me to go there, but I do love you enough to believe you and say, yes, you did see something. She says uh, in the documentary, I believe, doesn't she at the end that 
her dad brought it up at the dinner table during a family dinner and that that was like the first time he had ever done that. So, I mean, you know, it took over 20 years, but it's better late than never to, you know, to come to terms with like, we all, we only got one shot at this. We're all not all around forever. So let's heal some wounds while we still have the opportunity. Right. And why would you rather be right that aliens aren't real rather than be a kind ear for your kid to yeah. be like, you little idiot, you think aliens are real? It's like, what is going on in your life that you got to bully a child over aliens? But yeah. not to say her parents did that. I think it was separate, but just in general. But my number one wish and hope, and I hope that they're benevolent, but is that more information comes out. It is corroborated finally that yes, they the whistleblower what the whistleblower said was right we have had our hands on technology that was not created in this world we have had our hands on vessels that were not created in this world this is what they look like this was the pilot that we found inside of one body and i hope that were not created exactly and i hope on this world <laughs> every single one of these children can uh find at least one person who didn't believe him and go in your face in your face i hope they are vindicated once and for all yeah and this documentary i mean it came out in 2022 so it's relatively new so Mm -hmm. i think the more people that see it like it's we're now in a in the age where something like this is going to be better received yes yeah absolutely i think people are more willing to consider it and more willing to entertain that not only yes we believe that they saw something but also in that it might be what this whistleblower has already been telling us about Mm -hmm. something else that i had never really considered or i i mean maybe but i'd never given it a ton of thought is how traumatic and upsetting one of these encounters can be for people i mean kids or adults like i think so many of the stories we hear things we show is like it's like, you know, it's wild and like spooky or whatever, but the long lasting actual trauma, like the uh, Nickerson, that's like, I can't even talk about this because yeah. it was, it was too personal. What you hold on to from something like this, I never considered like how um, sad and lonely and isolating and dark it can be for people that have gone through an experience where they feel like, they're the only ones that went through it and that they don't have anybody to talk to about it. Yeah. And you're right. I think that might be why Dr. John Mack was drawn to people who had this experience, not just because it does say something on the nature of our spirituality and and our existence, but often in his interviews, he would point out that these are people that are further isolated by the nature of their belief. You know, people that go through something traumatic, whether it's they've been through war, they've been through abuse on a personal, you know, a one-to-one level, they've been, uh, you know, through a traumatic terrorist incident or a mass shooting or something that's at least accepted and talked about and can be talked about with without disdain and without disgust and, you know, okay. But he, I think he was drawn to this group of people, not just the students from the aerial school, but throughout the rest of his career where he interviewed um, folks one-on-one, you know, that had these more like abduction incidents as well, because they were so othered, they were so made separate and watching that compound the pain that they've already gone through and now making something, it's even more painful than it Mm -hmm. was before. So it's a whole new layer of pain because not only are you suffering pain because 
of all the other reasons like you just listed of when people experience trauma, but also everyone's like, well, he's a quack, you know? And like, no one is saying that about somebody that's like, I went through a mass shooting or I've gone through severe abuse. You know I mean? Like there's a lot more sympathy and understanding given to people like that. And like people are other, and if it's a fringe belief type of traumatic incident, someone's disclosing, then it's met with a lot of like, okay, well, this makes me uncomfortable, so I'm not going to talk about it with you. But sorry, you went through that. Yeah. No, you're right. And I think now if someone said, oh, I'm a Harvard-trained psychologist, and I'm going to go around and interview kindergartners who have been involved in mass shootings and and up till fourth graders, you know, the kids that were these age, you know, between sixth and even seventh grade, you know, for between six years old and 12 years old. And I'm going to interview students who have survived mass shootings and understand the psychology behind it. I don't think anybody would go like, what a quack. What a, no. wow, he wants to talk to them. And in they'd fact, be, they'd be uh, thought very highly of. I'm sure there probably are psychologists out there doing that right now, too. Um, But and you see that the God, I saw a video not to talk about that too much, but I did see a video that was a a Gen Z reporter stopping young people in the streets and going, hey, can you tell me about your first mass shooter drill? And then and interviewing them and they'd be like, yeah, I remember I was in second grade or Mm -hmm. yeah, I remember I was in fifth grade or whatever. But I think if you like you said, because of those incidents that they go through is documented, we know it sees that's one version of of pain that they're going through. But Dr. John Mack was clearly drawn to these people because it was compounded by that. And I think Randall Nickerson too, you know, you, you write what you know, and he knows what it felt like to feel lonely and sad and not believed. So I'm glad that he gave a outlet for all of these kids and now adults to be heard and hopefully believed. And their story told in a, a kind and and frankly a well researched oh, and yeah. well done way. I mean, I, I was very. Uh, I watch a lot of documentaries, and this is up there with like production value, but still a low budget and everything, and just the way it was all edited and everything. And I love when archival footage is brought in because it really you feel like it's a more immersive, and you feel like that's to me at least, like more believable because you see like this, I'm watching what people were talking about like right after this happened and that's real raw and fresh. Yes. And then compared, juxtaposed to them in their 30s going almost the same thing, you know, very similar going, yeah, then I remember as a kid and they put the camera in my face. So you're right. It was effective to have those. I said, he comes with receipts. He does. If, If anybody listen has an alien story that you are comfortable sharing, yeah. You send them in, sinisterhood.com slash freaky Friday. We've we've received a handful, but I will say of all the stories we receive, they're the least sent in. And whether that's yeah. because people don't want to talk about it or it just hasn't happened, I don't know. But if if any of you out there have a story and you're willing to share it, we'd love to hear it. And we will Absolutely. believe you. Yes. And if you or anyone you know is at the uh, aerial school in Rua, Zimbabwe, and you want to tell your version of it, hell, we'll bring you on oh, the show. But man. definitely oh, yeah. write into us. Gosh, yeah. yes. I'd love to talk to any of those kids. Well, now adults, but definitely. Mm-hmm. Well, if you like our free episodes, you'll love our Patreon bonus content. You can join for free to see what we're up to next or dive into over 500 hours of bonus content like our recent mini-sode on Siri in the courtroom. We also have one coming up on 
a viral sensation that we probably all remember from years ago. And the husband of that is now being accused of murdering his wife. The dress that took the internet by storm. Was it blue? Was it gold? We all shows aside. And now tragedy has fallen on that story. And for recent patrons, thank you so much for supporting the show. And make sure you stick around after our sign-offs to hear your shout-out. You can also head to Sinisterhood.com and click shop on the top banner to check out our merch, like t-shirts, mugs, totes, stickers, and even clothes for your kiddos. Just head to the website and click on shop. While you're there, you can also review the show, follow us on socials, and check out the episode description for more fun, like topic-based playlists and links to live show tickets. You can follow us on Instagram and threads at Sinisterhood Pod. We're on Facebook at Sinisterhood. We're on YouTube and TikTok at Sinisterhood Podcast. We're also on Cameo if you would like to book us for a custom video shout out to send a birthday greeting, send an anniversary, uh, have a great day, uh, back to school for teachers in your life, whatever. Go to Cameo.com and search Sinisterhood and book us for your personal video shout out. Christy, where are you at online? I'm on Instagram at Christy M. Wallace and TikTok at Christy or GTFO and soon to be threads, I suppose. I'll sign up. <laughs> Will I? What is it called? If it's not a tweet, what do they call it? A ravel? A post or a thread? They should call oh. them ravels. We're going to call them ravels. <laughs> She's like, I'm ready to ravel. <laughs> I'm ready to that? unravel. Stay tuned for that. <laughs> Heather, <laughs> where are you at? about to get raveled um i've been raveling everywhere at heather versus the world and that's yeah on everything all platforms as always the devil rules the airwaves keep it creepy Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for supporting the show on Patreon. Here are your special Patreon shout outs. Molly Dubay. Jennifer Navarro. Julia Bruno. Megan M. Megan Davies Standevold. Martha Dominguez. Cora White. Kim. Sydney Hunter. Madison Wilson. Melissa Schildnecht. Allison Molino. Anne Marie Giacob. Thank you so much for supporting the show. We could not do this without you. We sincerely appreciate all the love and support, and we hope you pronounce your names correctly. Thank you again. Stay safe, stay healthy, and keep it creepy. Bah ha ha ha.